welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. In necessarius unitas, in non necessarius libertas, in utrusque caritas. Amen. Um, all right, so just a quick aside there's um, a, a popularity and move within um, the Roman Catholic Church uh, to reject Vatican II and to move back to the Latin Mass. Um, Actually, there are some Anglicans that are also wanting to move back to Latin in the liturgy. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's good, but I kind of want to be hip and cool, so I want to move towards Latin in the sermon. Um, it's going to be hard because I actually don't know Latin, but, um, but bear with me. We'll just incrementally bring it in. But no, no, I, it's a, that was a, 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 a phrase that is actually a, a, a popular phrase, at least in, in some circles, it's become popular. It's the original form of the saying, in the essentials unity, in the non-essentials liberty or freedom, in all things charity or love. This phrase is usually attributed to St. Augustine. I always held it to be um, attributed to St. Augustine. I remember back whenever, uh, like probably 15 years ago, I was um, hanging out with a, a few scholars and hanging out with one guy who was a patristic scholar, a scholar of the early church fathers. And I was trying to impress him. And so then I quoted that and talked about St. Augustine. And he told me um, St. Augustine never said that. And then I did some research and realized that the phrase actually comes from uh, German Reformed scholar and thinker from the 1600s. Uh, but really, it doesn't matter because the idea behind it is either true or false, regardless of who said it. But I think that it is actually a, a valuable idea that's behind in the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty and all things charity. And it's, I think, gained popularity in the face of the scandal of how divided the church is today. Uh, the, the fighting and the division that has happened over the recent centuries. There's one challenge, though, with this phrase. It's determining what is essential and what is non-essential. I mean, there, there are some who, who seem to kind of have the idea that the only essential is to unify around the importance of unity. And so non-essential can be applied to almost anything. In some contexts, it could go to the physical resurrection of Christ, the authority of Scripture. Even within our communion, um, there was a bishop within the global Anglican communion who was agnostic and open about it. Didn't necessarily believe that there was a God. But 
in the non-essentials, freedom. You know, I mean, and, and so it can go that direction, but it can go the opposite direction. Um, I had encountered many debates, especially uh, whenever I was in, in the Southern Baptist Convention, where one of the essentials was the King James Version of the Bible. To which I, I let them know that the King James was just a, a just modern innovation of the real Bible, which is the Geneva Bible. And if you ain't reading the Geneva, you ain't reading the Bible. And if you disagree with me, you can get out because it's an essential, right? But see, I, I think that phrase captures a right mentality. But at the end of the day... It's not really that useful. Except for the one part. All things charity. I love. It doesn't mean that we don't argue, don't disagree. And arguments may even be heated. But what should be the differentiation of the church is not that everything is peace and happy and everything's good. And we just pretend like we always like each other and agree with each other on everything. No. But the disagreement is done within the, the saturating framework of love, of charity. Should be. But there's this odd thing, not odd thing, hard thing. Um, Jesus seems to like to redeem broken people. And so his church is made up of broken people. So we don't always do it right. But nonetheless, I think that is what Scripture says, how we are to engage in these debates and, um, and discussions. And so as we read and are walking through Acts, we came upon an event that I think is important for us to reflect on an event that is at the center of Acts. It is actually literally at the center of Acts, and I think it was very intentional by Luke to put it there. Because if you remember, Acts actually doesn't completely follow chronological timelines. And so sometimes you go forward and backwards and stuff like that. And this is placed right at the center. It's the first great church council, often referred to as the Council of Jerusalem. And it became a model for subsequent church councils over the following centuries. And so I want to just take a moment and not walk through this very long passage that we actually even cut some parts out, but just focus on the idea of what was so essential that it was worth fighting over. And what might be odd to us, but for them, was so central, which was the importance of unifying around it. And then I want to make just a very quick note about the nature of the liberty that was offered. So what was worth fighting about? Well, we get a glimpse into it in verses 1 through 2, and then verses 5 again. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles 
and the elders about this question. And then once they're in Jerusalem, it says, but some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the issue was circumcision, but it wasn't actually circumcision per se. The issue was what it was represented, what it, what it was tied to. In reality, most, most, most male babies in the United States of America t- statistically are circumcised. And Paul says in Galatians 5 that if you receive circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. But he's clearly not just speaking about circumcision as in the medical act of cutting off foreskin. Because Paul was circumcised. Most of the early believers were circumcised. Paul encouraged Timothy, who wasn't circumcised, to be circumcised. So the issue is not actually circumcision, as in if you cut off the foreskin of a small baby, that baby's eternal state is secured for damnation. Not what's happening here. But see, the issue that is happening here is why they were teaching the need for circumcision, and in that context, what it represented. So a little bit of Old Testament um, uh, theology just to understand what is happening here, because I think it's important for us to understand this. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a mark of the Mosaic Covenant. It was shorthand for submitting to the covenant that was through Moses and was reflected in the whole of the Levitical law. It was a binding mark of being brought under a temporary two-sided covenant that marked one as part of God's people. If you go back and, and, and read through Leviticus, there are tons of stipulations carrying different dynamics, some dietary, some ceremonial, some sacrificial, some ethical But these are stipulations that are required within that covenant structure. If you go back a few Sundays, as a shameless plug, we've talked about the idea of clean and unclean with Peter. And if you haven't heard that sermon, that gets a little bit more in depth to understanding what those things represented and why it mattered to the first Christians. But I I say that it was a two-sided covenant because within the covenant, if one was faithful to the stipulations, then one would receive the promises, one would be considered clean or justified, and would be able to approach God. One would remain within God's chosen people, heirs to the promise. But if unfaithful to their side of the covenant, then they were said to be cursed cut off from God, cut off from his people, cut off from the land of promise. And it was a means through which God says that he would keep God's people, God's chosen people, Israel, separate from all the other nations. Mark them as holy, which is what separate what holy means is to be separated, to be set apart. And within that, that's what 
what circumcision represented. In ancient uh, covenants, what would happen is they would do a physical act as a representation of a promise of saying that whatever is happening here, if I break my covenant vow, then that will happen to me. Usually what would happen is they would, you, you actually see it in Abraham with the Abrahamic covenant, is they would take animals, they would cut them in half, they would put them on both sides, then they would walk through those animals and essentially would say that if I break my covenant vow, what happened to these animals must it should be done to me and that's how the covenant worked and it's usually tied to cutting to blood and oftentimes sacrifice and death and so circumcision was that outward sign of being brought into that covenant to say where there was blood and there was a cutting off and being thrown away. That if I break my side of the covenant, that just like the foreskin, I too will be cut off. I will be separated. So the controversy at hand was that some had come and were claiming that the Mosaic Covenant was still binding, that one's justification, their purity, their acceptance, all of those things that were tied to that covenant depended upon Christ and adherence to the Mosaic Law. They weren't denying Jesus. These were not Jews denying Jesus as Messiah, they were Christians who were claiming that you needed Jesus plus something else. But according to Paul, as he fleshes this out in, in his letter to Galatians, who are dealing with the same teaching, it says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And earlier he said, if you accept circumcision, if you accept part of that covenant as still binding, you must accept the whole because the ancients weren't like the moderns where we can have a smorgasbord and say, I like that, I dig that, I'm not going to follow that. No, if you accept the part, you accept the whole and then he says you are under the whole of it. It's a dangerous place to be. And as I said, it's a temporary covenant. Because if you read the Old Testament prophets, they alluded to the the fact that that one day there will be a, a fulfillment and an even greater covenant that would come. One that would be marked by a new circumcision, a circumcision of the heart. It's a temporary covenant that the New Testament authors understood to exist to point to fulfillment in Christ through whom a new, now one-sided covenant would be established. Again, as St. Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, for, for, for Paul and Barnabas, for the early church, the essential issue uh, that, that, that was worth debating, was worth fighting over, was the centrality and the sufficiency of Christ. What was at stake was, what, was that what Christ did, the gospel, was it fully efficacious and sufficient? To do all those things that the old two-sided covenant claimed to do, but actually left us condemned. To mark us as clean. As St. Peter says in his speech, a Jew would have picked this up. Having been made clean in their hearts by faith in the Holy Spirit. What makes you clean? What makes you acceptable? What makes you justified? What makes you part of the people of God? It was the essential of the gospel. And we see that that Paul and even sweet Barnabas were willing to fight. Paul, I get, because Paul is kind of contentious, but Barnabas... I mean, we just talked about Barnabas, but it said in kind of a ancient, um, um, subtle way, like kind of like, like underhanded. I don't know if that's the right term, but like where it says that they had no small dissension, Paul and Barnabas. Actually, the, 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 the no small is that's kind of like a play. Like, no, it was a big dissension. And then dissension in the Greek actually is a word that is translated either insurrection or heated quarrel. This was so important to Paul and Barnabas that they were in a heated quarrel. So important that they would travel 250 miles from Antioch to Jerusalem for a lengthy debate. Because the gospel was at stake. Because for them, that was the essential of all Essentials. But also notice something intriguing is they traveled all that distance. And many other elders also traveled a distance as well to Jerusalem. Why? Because not only defending the gospel mattered, but unity of the church around the gospel mattered. Truth mattered, but unity mattered too. They didn't send letters. And if it was modern times, I guarantee if they had the technology, they still wouldn't have just sent emails. They traveled because unity did not represent a disconnected, vague sense that we agree on ideas, but actually communion. And if you're going to flesh it out, you're going to flesh it out face to face with your brother. So because for them, there was no concept of, you know, imagine Paul, like, well, that's their truth, but I'm going to live my truth. Well, that's just their interpretation. I, I'm a, no, 
See, because for them, the idea of the church being some separated, disconnected individuals who hold a loose self-identification of Christian would have been completely foreign to the church for pretty much almost 2,000 years. Instead, they came together and did the awkward thing. Because it's usually awkward to have to confront face-to-face. So much easier not to. So much easier to throw bombs over the internet or easier to then just avoid the issue altogether. But instead, they came together face-to-face because unity around the gospel was that important to the church. And so they came together to hash it out I skipped a a chunk, but we see that the way they hashed it out was looking at how the Holy Spirit had been moving and what God had been doing in the church. But that wasn't just enough, because then what with the section that if you want to just read the whole section after 11 is then they went and searched the scriptures to try to discern and make sense of what God had been doing. And then through that. They sought to bring unity through very different people, Jew and Gentile. But a unity that doesn't come through a love of unity, but a unity that comes through a love and a rootedness in the centrality and sufficiency of Christ and his gospel. And the essential is unity. The essential for the church was its willingness to fight for the gospel, but also go through the exhausting work of meeting together over days and days to fight for unity around the gospel. And we see that the practice continued for centuries. Or essential issues of the gospel when they were at stake, whether it be the nature of Christ or the nature of the Trinity or the Pelagian controversy where it was whether or not we are saved by grace or if we have the ability to save ourselves. All of those things brought together people from far and wide to sometimes spend months fighting and debating. And they were fallen people. Sometimes it wasn't all in charity. (laughs) There's some good stories out of those conferences. Some punches that were thrown, <laughs> comments made. But nonetheless, it was still out of the recognition that the gospel was central and essential. And it was so central and essential that we would fight over it, but we would not fight over it so that I can prove I'm right and you're wrong. We would fight over it because that should be the thing that marks us and unifies as says the church. And so in, you have the in the essentials, but I just want to make a quick note on the idea of liberty. One, one of the things is that, that you notice within this is that they didn't tell the Jewish Christians that they were now required to stop living as Jews. The Jewish Christians could live and worship as they were. They weren't forced to eat pork. I think they should because pork is really good. But nonetheless, they weren't forced to do so. And the Gentiles were not required to become like Jew in practice or in custom. 
But both were required to be united around the centrality and sufficiency of Christ. That it is by grace through faith one is made clean, one is made accepted, one is declared righteous, one is marked as a child of God. But then there's that question that maybe arose in your mind when you read it. It did in mine, so I did a lot of research on it. In verse 29, what's up with, with the few stipulations? It says that we have these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So after all this is then all of a sudden like they're giving out a law light. Like you do not need to be under the burden of the law. It's too heavy, but I'll just give you a little bit lighter one and maybe you can achieve this. But see, the thing is, 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 is you are free. It's not saying like you are free But then also, here's some moral instructions that doesn't actually make any sense. Because of all the instructions, he's saying, like, you are absolutely free because we're speaking about morality here. You're you're free to do whatever you want except for these few things. It's all right if y'all murder. You know, it's okay if you rob people. Don't strangle no animals. And make sure you wear your chastity belt. You're good to go. But because these are the only morality, moral things that we're concerned about. Like, that makes no sense. I mean, we see that, that all of God's moral commands and law of how we are to live right is found throughout all the New Testament. It's still binding on us because that's how we were created to live. I don't think this is speaking about just these particular moral commands that really, really matter. And, it, and it's not them same as some, as some of the authors that I had read that, that well, circumcision should not be required, but here are a few aspects of the Levitical law that you do need to keep. Because it, it, it actually doesn't fit within the Levitical law, this list. See, what's happening here is interesting. Because, yes, there is, in the non-essentials, liberty. There's freedom, but it's not speaking to God's moral law. This list is a list of all the practices that were commonly known, especially amongst the Jews... To refer to idolatry. Practices within pagan worship. The, uh, the word that says sacrifice to idols is actually the Greek word literally means food. Who's, that has been sacrificed to idols. And this practice of pagan worship was often that they would strangle an animal. They would do that because what they wanted is when they strangled the animal, they thought the life breath of that animal would go into the idol and bring life into that idol. And then they would kill the animal, but because the life of the animal also came not from its breath but its blood, that they would put blood on the idol and then they would drink some of that blood. And then they would eat the meat of that idol. It's referring to participation in pagan worship. And then there's the idea of sexual immorality. The Greek word pornea. It can refer to just general sexual immorality, but at its foundational and most basic use, it refers to prostitution. Which was a common practice within pagan worship. 
especially amongst certain gods where you would have temple prostitutes. And in the temple, you would have sex with that prostitute. See, what they're saying is that, yes, there is liberty, there is freedom in Christ, but if you are in Christ, you must turn from the false idol worship that you were once in. And they're saying that as you go to these Gentiles, let them know that they are no longer under the covenant of punishment and reward, that they are free and they are liberated, but they are free and liberated because Christ is central and sufficient. Because he is sufficient for all things, they must no longer turn to idols, turn to their old worship, turn to those things that they relied on. As much as the Jews relied upon their ability or inability to uphold to the covenant for their righteousness, their acceptance, their identity, their value, so in the same way the, uh, the pagans relied on their idolatry and worship to give themselves some sense of security, some type of acceptance, some type of idea. And so the, the elders, the apostles... Say, tell them of their liberty, but remind them to be in Christ means to reject the idolatry. Reject that which you put your faith and your trust in before Christ. See, liberty in non-essentials does not mean liberty to pursue idolatry. And we all have idolatry today. It's just whatever it is that we have put our hope, our acceptance, our righteousness, our value, our identity, our security, all of those things that ought to be given to the throne of God, whatever we place that in is our idol. And so if you worship the altar of sexual identity and freedom or you worship the altar of power and wealth or whatever else, in the non-essentials, freedom doesn't mean To each your own, (laughs) you're free. No, because you aren't. Not, Not unless Christ is central and sufficient to everything. It's only in that do we have actual liberty and freedom. If not, we're in shackles to that idolatry. And so, in closing, the question that we need to ask ourselves So what do we fight and divide over? And what really unifies us? See, even as I was talking about the idolatry thing, um, we must not have our unity be just simply around the fact that we equally abhor a certain particular form of idolatry in our modern cultural day and make that the essential that unifies us. All idolatry must be turned from But the reality is, is the essential of essentials that we must rally around and unify us is not what particular idol we abhor, but instead what particular king we bow down to, who is Christ. And for Redeemer... I mean, it's hard because, because it is hard. In a lot of ways, the church fighting and the dividing is a scandal in many ways to, to our society and community. And sometimes it's just going to be that way. And sometimes we try to navigate because the hard thing is, is everything in some way touches on the gospel. And so we have to try to navigate. How can we be faithful to the gospel? 
but also seek unity. And I say that because we are part of a global Anglican communion in which right down the street we're not in communion with somebody who's part of that global Anglican communion right now. St. John's Episcopal Church. And I don't know the right answer through all that, but we should not take division lightly, but we also should never take the gospel lightly. But no matter what, is that as Redeemer, at least, What should mark us and unify us is not the fact that we agree on everything. It's not the fact that we look the same, we vote the same, we have all the same values. But because we all see the essential of essentials as the centrality and sufficiency of Christ and his gospel. That we are justified and accepted by grace through faith in Christ alone. And because that's what unifies us, then we're not threatened by the fact that sometimes we might have some conversations that are awkward because we disagree. As long as those conversations are based around the fact that we want to maintain unity around Christ and his gospel. See, the centrality and sufficiency of Christ is everything. And don't get me wrong, that does not mean that other things don't matter, but they only matter because they in some way are connected and tied to the main thing. If our acceptance, our justification, our ability to come before God rests in anything other than grace that is ours through faith alone and Christ alone, we are left cut off just as the covenant sign of circumcision symbolized. And as Paul says, we remain condemned, for no one is righteous before the law. Even if you reject God's law, we all then create our own law, and we don't even live up to your own law that we create for ourselves. And we leave, we're left cut off and condemned. But thanks be to God that Jesus was cut off. Cut off from his people, cut off from the living, cut off from the Father, that through his blood a new one-way covenant of grace might be established. His work is complete and fully sufficient. So we do not need Jesus plus anything. We just need Jesus. For our justification, our righteousness, and our salvation comes by grace through faith in the fully sufficient work of Christ. That, my friends, I don't know about you, but for me, is good news that is worth defending. And it's good news that's worth unifying around. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons, and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue thy free grace alone from the first to the last has won my affection